quotes from the staff where we talk about our point of view and we share the things we're gonna do and we hope you're learning something new because the path to mastering theory begins with you welcome to notes from the staff a podcast from the creators of you theory where we dive into conversations about music theory ear training and music technology with members of the U Theory staff and thought leaders from the world of music education. I'm Leah Sheldon, Head of Teacher Engagement for U Theory. And I'm Greg Risto. I'm Associate Professor of Conducting at the Oberlin Conservatory and the founder of U Theory. And I'm David Newman. I teach voice and music theory at James Madison University, and I write code and create content for U Theory. Our topic today is one that several of you wrote in to say you'd love to hear. Uh, shout outs to Noel Warford, Michael Joviala, and Maddie Tarantelli in particular. We'll be talking about counting systems or rhythm systems, which are basically solfege systems for counting rhythms. There are a lot of systems, but we'll break them down into categories and give examples of why you might use one or more of these to help teach rhythm. We've also got links in the show notes to helpful references, including printable rhythm system resources you can find at utheory.com slash teach slash resources. So yeah, let's dive in. What is a counting system? Uh, probably many of us have had encounters with these growing up. The most common is, in America at least, is probably the one-yanda, two-yanda approach. Uh, so yeah, so so what are these? Why why do we use these? And I wonder, what, what systems do you use, David, Leah? Well, I, when I started teaching oral skills, I didn't use any system at all. Uh, I definitely used uh, a version of counting in college when I was learning. Um, mostly in choir, though. Then we switched to, to Takadimi at James Madison University. Um, and then recently we have switched to what we're calling the Eastman system, which is one Ianda and one Lali, two Lali. I guess that's not really the Eastman system, but it's some hybrid. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Um, I think it's probably, I mean, one of the things you mentioned, right, you did a lot of it in like high school choir. I think that for a lot of us, that's probably where we learn our counting systems is in, is through our school music programs. Right. Uh, certainly for me, that's, you know, one yanda, two yanda was a constant partner to my, my years in band. How about you, Leah? What, what systems do you use? Have you used? Yep. I grew up, grew up using one yanda, two yanda. So just a traditional counting system, um, use that throughout college as well. Uh, in my first couple years of teaching, especially at the elementary level, I actually taught with Kodai syllables. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I began teaching at the middle school and the high school, I was mostly teaching counting again. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are different kinds of approaches to this. And in a lot of ways, I think they, they parallel the, uh, the debate about how to teach reading, just how to teach reading a language, and that uh, there are approaches that you might call phonics approaches, where you uh, kind of break down the rhythm and analyze the, the relative durations. And then there are approaches that you might think of as being more whole language or whole word approaches, where you learn basically rhythmic patterns uh, in, in groups. So you might learn like uh, an eighth and two sixteenth D dot dot as pie and apple or two sixteenths and an eighth as, as cherry pie. So, so we're going to talk about these, these approaches in different categories. We'll talk about um, uh, what we're calling analytical or metric subdivisional systems. And these are the kind of traditional systems like the American counting system, one yanda, two yanda, or the Eastman system, one to data, 
uh, Gordon, uh, the, the Dudes, and Takadimi as well, uh, and mnemonic or pattern-based systems. Uh, these are especially used in the ORF approach to music education. Note syllable systems, as Leah mentioned, the Kodai system, where we have uh, things where the syllable is associated with the note duration. So ta as a quarter note, t as an eighth note, etc. Although it doesn't follow that exactly. And a little bit kinesthetic approaches like the Dalcro's approach to music education, which has uh, combines a, a bit of the analytical, analytical metric subdivisional system approach and mnemonic approach with uh, work through movement. So yeah, let's dive in. Let's talk first about the uh, these analytical or metric subdivisional systems. We've said a couple of times probably the most common is uh, that that one eanda. It doesn't really have a name. If you you know if you look around, people call it the Eastman system. Though uh, the Eastman system, as proposed by Mikos and Tibbs, was actually one to teta, which is still in use quite a lot of places. When we say that, what we're saying is that if you take four sixteenth notes in simple time, you would call each of those notes by a syllable, one to teta, right? So if I had two eighth notes, I could say one te, two te, ti te, four te. For a measure, if I had a measure of sixteenths, I'd say one to teta, two to teta, ti to teta, four to teta. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, and you know, the Eastman, the Eastman system seems to have been, um, is, is is newer than the traditional American system, which I think most of us are familiar of one and two and three, right? Um, is modified so that you get a more percussive beginning to each syllable. In the traditional American system, we go one e and a two e and a t e and a four e and a. Uh, and if we're in a compound meter in the Eastman system, uh, we go one lolly, two lolly. Or if we have sixteenth notes, uh, say we're in six eight with sixteenth notes, we can subdivide all the way down to one to lata lita, two to lata lita, one to lata lita, two to lata lita. So yeah, that's uh, Eastman slash traditional American system. And a lot of people use a combination of those. Um, Lee, you want to talk about Gordon? Sure. So um, Edwin Gordon's music learning theory um, really focuses on teaching the students to audiate and think in rhythms. And uh, that's done through learning the patterns that are really based on macro beats, micro beats, um, and then what he calls melodic rhythm. Um, so for example, if... Uh, the macro beat were a quarter note, that would be do, do. And if we break that down into eighth notes, then we have do, day, do, day, um, all the way down into 16th notes, do to data. And in compound meters, uh, we're breaking that into do, da, de, do, da, de. Um, and if there's further subdivision, do to data, dita. Um, but again, this, the whole approach of Gordon is, is, to help students audiate the rhythm. So it's not necessarily looking at the rhythm and reading it from notation, but um, hearing it. So it's subjective. What one person hears as a macro beat might not be what someone else is hearing as the macro beat, but it at least it, it gives us um, a way to analyze the rhythm that's heard and be able to break it down into those syllables. And, and the, Gordon, the Gordon music learning sequence uh, places a big focus, I think what you're saying, right, is on the the sound before sight kind of thing. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And if you know, if you're listening and you're saying, "Oh my goodness, they're saying all these syllables," and how I'm how am I going to remember what's what? Uh, don't worry, we've prepared uh, resources on on these counting systems for you at, at utheory.com/teach/resources. Uh, so how about Takadimi, David? Uh, Takadimi is interesting. It was conceived um, relatively recently. 
about 20 years ago, maybe a little longer, um, as a way of sort of making a, a fluent way and a logical way of dividing up each beat. So, and I think all of the systems that we've talked about so far, they're, we, we've talked about them uh, re referencing a quarter note beat, but they can be used with a half note beat or a whole note beat. Um, they're, they're really beat based and, and how you divide up that beat. So when you divide up uh, a beat into four parts in Takadimi, you use, surprisingly enough, Takadimi. <laughs> and uh, if you divide it into uh, three beats, you do Takida. And if you divide that further into, into six beats, then you do use Tavakididama. And one of the mm. things that they tried to design it around uh, aside from the fact of changing the part of your mouth that um, makes each syllable so that they're easy to do fast syllables together, is that they made sure that D is always the middle of the beat. Um, so the middle division of the beat. So even if you have ta-ka-di-mi-tava-ki-di-dama, D still lines up in the same place. Cool. I, I have to say, I love the sound of takadimi when I hear people do it well and fluently. It has a kind of, uh, I, I find it has a sort of musical flow, maybe because of what you're talking about with where the syllables are, that um, that yeah. my my beloved Wanianda doesn't have so much. <laughs> and, and, and people like the crispness of the consonants as well, um, which, which is my... Uh, colleague's main complaint with the counting is that wa mm -hmm. is very um, ambiguous about it where it starts. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure, for sure. So these are these are all these what we've been calling analytical or metric subdivisional systems, which is to say that uh, given given a beat that's either in simple time or at a time where the beats divide in two or four, or in compound time where they divide in three or six, then we can break down the beats into the notes within the beat into various syllables. These are the most probably common uh, approaches to teaching rhythm. Uh, but we also have uh, mnemonic or pattern-based approaches. Sometimes these are called rhythm word approaches, uh, where you assign different you can assign different words, actually literally English words, to syllables. So I use these a lot myself when I'm teaching compound meter, uh, which has fewer commonly used patterns. Um, so, you know, like for instance, say we're in six, eight and we have three eighth notes. Uh, if we're in geography land, that might be Canada, Canada. The dotted quarter could be <laughs> Rome, Rome. Uh, the eighth and a quarter could be, um, uh, what's a good da, di, da, di, da. I, you know, I've, I've, I have used Longy, Longy, because I learned these at the Longy School of Music, uh, but that may not apply <laughs> anywhere else. And for eighth quarter, I've always used Scotland, 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 right? So you just get, wind up with, uh, and I think one of the nice things about these mnemonic approaches is that they get students thinking at a beat level and not at a micro subdivisional level, and they get them there very quickly. That's super important, and and I did the I realized I did the same thing, uh, like in in 2011 I made a video that ended up going a little bit viral, yeah, you know, with a with using food words that we had come mm -hmm. up with in my class, 
um, yeah. for simple meters. <clears throat> it wound up on a t-shirt somewhere. And this is, and this, you know, like this, I, I think especially if, you know, anyone who's had training in ORF is, is saying right now, oh yeah, this is, this is what we do. This is just very, <laughs> very central to the, the ORF approach to, to teaching music education is thinking in these, in these words, um, you know, and there's that connection as well with, with Gordon. And I think a lot of, uh, of music education, uh, philosophy of, of, uh, that allows doing a lot in sound, uh, before actually moving to musical notation. Yeah, which is another great advantage of it. Although I uh, regularly see memes uh, being shared on Facebook with with words attached to um, various rhythms, and there's always one that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where the stresses just don't work. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> And I will say, you know, uh, yeah, and we'll talk more about, about various strengths of these, but um, one of the challenges of, if you're assigning a word to each pattern, is sometimes the way these patterns line up in music, you, you know, they don't, they don't all begin, um, the musical idea could begin before the beat, not necessarily on the beat. And, you know, and then what do you, you know, how does that change the words you might want to say? Um, right. The danger, I think, of sometimes these patterns is that they always you wind up with words that always stress the first note of the pattern, uh, which may not be where the stress actually falls musically. Um, so yeah, so we have, we have the mnemonic or pattern-based approaches, um, and generally people who use those tend to call them approaches rather than systems because there is, you know, this this um, idea of let's find let's find words that match, and you know maybe one class will have a different set of words because. That's come out of, of uh, the student's ideas within another class. Um, there are also uh, note-syllable systems. We mentioned Kodai. Le Leah, do I remember that you taught with Kodai? I did. I did. And um, although I have my ORF levels, you know, I, I drew on a variety of approaches based on what we were working on. But um, and, and even in my own circle of music education peers and colleagues, there were some discrepancies between what the actual syllables are once you get to the 16th note level. Mm -hmm. um, Can you talk us through the basic disagreement. syllables? Can yeah. you talk us through so, the basic syllables for your time? The quarter notes are always ta, and a pair of eighth notes is titi, and 16th notes are <laughs> either tika tika or tiri tiri, or you've even heard tiki tiki. Um, so the, the disadvantage being that um, you're not necessarily uh, distinguishing where the macro beat is versus the micro beat. Like an eighth note isn't ta-t, it's always t-t. Um, but it does make it very easy for students to identify types of notes from a very early age and understand that, oh, it's a pair of eighth notes and that's um, a beat that's divided into two sounds. Mm -hmm. And there's because of that, there's not... Um... Uh, you don't have to make this determination early on. Are we in, when looking at music, is this in simple time or compound time? Because you can just name each note by its syllable mm -hmm. or each rhythmic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so much so to the point that, you know, students in kindergarten through second grade may not even know that that's a quarter note. <laughs> that's a ta and that's a tt, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is probably a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Good. So yeah, and and so okay. So we've talked about analytical metric subdivision approaches, mnemonic approaches, note syllable systems like Kodai, uh, and then kinesthetic approaches. Uh, Dalcro's the Dalcro's approach is probably the most famous for this, uh, where uh, and it's uh, most Dalcro's teachers will connect rhythmic patterns to uh, particular rhythm motions. Um, so I mean, one of the things that I do a lot when I'm teaching basic rhythms is. I'll do an echo canon with students. I'll say, okay, do what I do four beats later. And I'll tap my nose as I say, doop, 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 doop. And then they'll tap it back. And I'll, uh, with my right hand, left hand, tug gently on each ear and say, chick, 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 for eighth notes. Um, do a little raising arm motion, ooh, ooh, for half notes. And do a clap with a long, for whole notes, right? And uh, you can spin that out in a, a bunch of ways to, you know, to get to reading and things like that. But the idea is you're connecting sound to different motions, and uh, and in a Dalcro's approach, you know, we're, I think similar to Orf, it's not that there is one approved motion for a particular rhythm pattern, but there's a real emphasis on on having these um, these movements, these sounds, these words. Be drawn out of the students as they as they learn to to feel the different patterns. So, would you, Leah? You've got your ORF certifications. Would you say that's that's parallel in the ORF approach? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great. So, with that overview of of counting approaches, what are our shared goals of using counting systems? Why do we use them? Accuracy, <laughs> but also understanding. But they all do encourage different ways of understanding. Yeah, for sure. I think some of them are, are definitely geared towards helping us to get quickly between sound and notation. They're very notational-based approaches, especially the those the metric subdivisional ones. But I think, you know, Leah, what you were talking about with the Gordon approach, right? That right. maybe there's more of a focus on oral analysis. Right. Uh, and exposure, exposure to um, rhythm patterns and meters and uh, giving students, even young students, an opportunity to build a rhythmic vocabulary and uh, to down the road, then have a, a deeper understanding of rhythm and reading it and writing it from notation. And, um, and also just facilitation for, for ease of imitation and repetition and, and everything that comes with sound before note. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it can also really reveal if there is some rhythmic issue happening, mm. adding syllables or words to it can help you as a teacher diagnose what's going wrong. Let's say you have a, a student trying to perform two sixteenths and then an eighth, and and they're performing it wrong. You say, okay, well, try it on, try it on rhythm syllables, and they say, okay, one and a. Then what you've discovered is they've they've misidentified looking at it visually where the sixteenths were versus where the eighth was, right? And so you can you can it can help you get to understanding is this a, is this a visual theoretical misidentification, a misrecognition of a pattern, or is this uh, a, an issue in in the actual counting of it, right? And if you're doing mnemonic words, then that that becomes uh, um, very apparent yeah. right away. Yeah, I'm also reminded of a student that I had where I, that where they just couldn't do rhythms, uh, they couldn't dictate rhythms properly, and I finally figured out that they were trying to figure out how long each note was instead of figuring out where it happened within the framework. 
Yeah. So that is another. I, David, I think you, this is, you've touched on something that I think is really huge and that maybe a lot of us aren't aware of, but I, I think there, I would say there's a good 20% of students out there, at least that I see at the college level who come in and they believe rhythm is about the addition of short and long notes together and not about orientation within a metric grid of some sort. And that, and, and especially, you know, I do, there are a lot of things I love from the Kodai method, but especially students whose only approach to reading rhythm has been Kodai, and a T is this long, and a Ta is this long, and a To is this long, can fall into that trap. So I think it, it, it does go back to, you know, if you're using, if you're using an approach like that, it's important to combine it with another approach where they, you know, as we've been talking about, where they understand where they're fitting within that metric grid. Because students who, students who think of rhythm as the addition of long and short notes, those, the minute inaccuracies that add up each time they perform a note get bigger and bigger. And what do those students do if they get lost in the middle of a measure? Right? They, there's, there's nothing to help them find their way back in. So I'm so glad you brought that up, David. So let's talk a little bit about how we use these when when we're teaching, um, and you know I guess the 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 classic things are we're generally either going from notation to sound in some way, whether that be performing on an instrument, or we're going from sound to analysis or sound to uh, to notation. Right? We hear something, we want to be able to play it back. We we hear something, we want to be able to write it down. We hear something, we want to be able to say. Yeah, that's a do today. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, maybe let's talk about reading rhythms and, and teaching rhythm reading. Um, Leah, I think you probably have the most recent experience teaching this at the most like basic level of, oh my God, I'm facing a class of elementary students and middle school students, etc. Can you talk with us a little bit about how you uh, how you work with students in that context? Sure. Um, and, and it also, it does depend on... Um, not necessarily what system you're using, but it does, you know, with young learners that you have to have a very clear objective and outcome. And, you know, for example, with a, a teacher who's teaching with the Gordon learning sequence, you're looking at whole part whole instruction in most cases. And um, the, the rhythm solfege really plays into the part part of that where you you've shared a song and now you're breaking it down into parts and you're isolating the rhythm patterns from the song and that's where you're chanting rhythms using the due days um and then putting that back into the big picture again back into the whole for students to have learned to sing a song or to perform a song um versus using kodai syllables that more quickly transfer to notation, uh, that could be something as simple as looking at the rhythm on the board, labeling the notes with ta and tt, and then um, having the students chant that rhythm first, you know, all together, and then until they're able to do that individually on their own. So it de it really depends what you're working on. We don't even possibly have time to get into <laughs> all the ways to go through that. But as just a, a quick overview, you know, most of the time it's just working with a whole group of students, uh, having them chant together as a group, um, maybe slightly older students then are able to work in small groups and be doing that on their own. Um, especially with ORF coming up with their own, you know, 
uh, words for the the rhythms that are presented to them, drawing on either a book that was just read or a song that was sung. So the options are endless. <laughs> the, yeah, they are. I, one of the things that, that you love that I forget about a lot, especially working at the college level, is this idea of of maybe first learn something by rote and then figure out what's in it. And that's mm-hmm. uh, that can be really, really beautiful to do. Yeah. It's, I think it's generally our default when we're working with younger students, especially at the elementary level. Absolutely. And that depends on teachers' philosophies too. But generally, if you are someone who has ORF levels or has gone through uh, the Gordon Institute of Music Learning, then you're probably going to be doing rote teaching and whole part whole instruction. Mm-hmm. Even at the college level, I think uh, Cynthia Gonzalez recently told me that she she never makes them do a rhythm or a melody by dictation that she hasn't already um, done with them in class that, that that they haven't already defined in class. And it doesn't mean that your students can't independently do this. I mean, again, the, the point, Gordon's whole point is that your students are able to audiate rhythm patterns. So you're going to get to the, a place with your students if you do enough chanting and if you're teaching an appropriate sequencing that your students can look at a pattern and think, audiate how it's going to sound or be able to chant it in ta's and tt's or, like I said, come up with words that fit. So th- they can also read it. We're not, I'm not talking about only teaching by rote at the elementary level, but that's definitely a, a big part of it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, um, actually, if we if we did want to focus now on teaching the reading of rhythm, uh, ways that we might use these systems um, for, let's let's talk metric analytical systems, right? So these are the our Gordon, our Takadimi, our Eastman, our American traditional systems. The I think the two most common ways would be you're looking at a rhythm and then you either count aloud all of the subdivisions at whatever subdivisional level you need while clapping the rhythm. So that might be something like one E and a two E and a three kind of a thing. Or you speak the rhythm using just the syllables that begin each note of the rhythm. So if I take the same rhythm of uh, that was one E and a two E and a three, if I were speaking or chanting or intoning, people uh, often prefer so that it's a bit more uh, vocal, right? It becomes one and two and a three kind of a thing. Uh, yeah. Is that, does that match with how David, Leah, you do things when using these approaches? Yeah. I think to add another layer onto that, when you're teaching instrumentalists though, that you're also teaching them to be constantly having whatever system is running in their head because they're not uh, clapping and counting aloud when they're playing their instrument. They're playing their instrument. So um, constantly being able to have the, you know, if you're if you're counting, then you've got the one andas running in your head while playing. So then there's a whole host of techniques that come up with with instrumentalists. So now we're we're sizzling on mouthpieces, the rhythm, or we are just um, mm-hmm. we're just. <laughs> the rhythm because that's how we're going to articulate it on the instrument or so <laughs> I don't know if we're trying to go down that path right now right. but <laughs> no I think that's beautiful yeah 
Yeah. That's that's that really emphasizes how important it is to have that inner metronome going and whatever we can mm -hmm. do to reinforce that inner metronome with inner subdivisions. <laughs> yeah. And I mean this takes me I I I wonder I we had a doctor beat <laughs> in in yep. band which is this this metronome that probably a lot of us experience that will actually count aloud the one and two and and or one e and a, and you can turn up or down all the subdivisions uh probably with that goal of getting Leah as you were talking about that 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 constant subdivisional um line running in your head as you're as you're performing right. there's there's also the i mean if you're reading music there's a visual component and then there's a what does it sound like component and so i know that in the musician's guide series they encourage uh written exercises where you just write in the syllables that you're using so that you've dealt with the visual component uh uh, so that it's again one of those assessment uh, opportunities where you can sort of figure out whether there's a problem understanding what you're seeing versus understanding how it sounds. Right. And again, when you're working with like middle school level students, for example, you're not always just picking one way and sticking with that. You're mm. um, trying trying a whole bunch of different ways to, to get at all the different learners in the room. So like, just like David said, yeah, sure. I would have students write in the counts. And then sometimes we would also, they came to me with, with knowledge of TAs and TTs. So let's go, go ahead, write in TA and TT. And then we would go through and we would chant them a couple of different ways. And then however the students were thinking in their head when they're playing, they've, they've had an opportunity to vocalize that and reinforce that. And th this kind of leads me to a point. I, I think it is so important to have two frameworks for the students, especially if they're coming from something like TA and TT or just using words connected to pat rhythm patterns. It is so important then to be connecting that to something analytical so that they have a means for figuring out what the rhythm is independently. Yeah, mm -hmm. this seems to be a theme that's come up on just about every episode so far, right? This this idea of, of of using different ways of thinking about things with solfege systems, something to name the letters, the the actual pitch space versus something to name its function in relation to a scale, to a key. I'm I'm a hundred percent with you on that, Leah. I think I think we need we need something that does let us do that that subdivisional analysis, but we also need something that gets us to that pattern level thinking where we're not we're not looking at every rhythm as though it were a totally new thing that we had to analyze, but we recognize a lot of what's within it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that there's any right or wrong way to do it. I, I think it takes a, a variety of approach, just like David said earlier. I mean, there have been times on the out on the football field that I was shouting <laughs> words just to get the students <laughs> to bring the, the rhythm together so we could get it lined up. You know, like, whatever works i love whatever works <laughs> especially on the football field oh my lord oh, something required directors pretty much never have to do yeah yeah uh let's so so yeah reading that's that's great um and, and then you know dictation um dictation is really oral analysis and 
Leah, you talked about with uh, the whole part whole approach, that idea of taking mm-hmm. a song we know, a piece we know, and then breaking it down. What are what are the rhythmic patterns in here? What's going what's going on? And you know whether we write that down or not, that's a kind of dictation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and very related to what what say if we were at the college level in an oral skills musicianship classroom, the kind of thing we'd be doing there. Um, if we're using analytical methods, there, if students are familiar with them and have used them a lot, then you know they can often go straight from sound to oh yeah, that's a one and a or you know or that's a whatever in in the system you're using. Um, one approach I think it's probably worth mentioning is what some people call the box approach, which if you're using a subdivisional or analytical system, where let's say that you know you're just starting off with beats and rests, so you have Say we're working in three, four. You have three boxes. You have a rhythm, ta, ta. And the students mark, oh, there's one in box one, there's one in box three, and learn how to translate that to notation. Uh, if you break it down to the eighth note level, say we're still in three, four, then now you have six boxes, a box for one and two and t and. And the students mark down where the notes begin and translate that to notation. Uh, and actually, if you if for students who've used a drum machine, this feels very natural to them because because uh, drum machines on you know in things like Ableton or Logic or wherever you see all your subdivisions spread out and you turn on or off different sounds on different subdivisions. Um, it, do you have you do you all use the box approach? I use it very early on, and I try and get away from it as quickly as I can myself. <laughs> I, I used, it's basically the same thing. I called them beat sheets where there's a, literally a picture of a heart because we're feeling the beat. Um, you know, so maybe if we're in four, four, then there's four across and it's a four measure pattern. So we've got four across, four going down. It's just, it's the same, is, same exact so is thing. The, are the four down the subdivisions of the, of the beat for you? Or is that four measures? So four measures, yeah. but we can easily subdivide the beat by drawing a line right down the middle of the heart. I love the heart. That's so great. And beat sheet. That's a, so very, much that's very, very popular. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, I've stolen that from many other educators. That's not something I came up with by any means. I'm, and now I'm going to steal it from you. These will forever be beat sheets when I teach now. It's great. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't have to stick to heartbeats. You can get creative, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose drums work too, but there's something nice about a heart, although a heart's really hard to divide in four. I've used both uh, spatial, uh, spatial analysis works really well for me, but, uh, but for a student who has trouble with spatial awareness, that isn't going to work really well necessarily. Mm-hmm. I've also used beat level systems like piano roll notation and also symbols symbolizing what happens within each beat. So yeah, beat sheets or whatever we want to call them, these are these are kinds of proto notation, right? They're they're things that uh, provide an intermediate step between Western musical notation and sound, and there are lots of different ones. Um, Janine Lawson Brown just published uh, an article on one in Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy, and actually we'll be talking with her about that in an upcoming episode. Uh, and the, yeah, those can be great for. Uh, for helping smooth that transition between our oral recognition. 
Um, one of the things that I think is really useful that uh, certainly those of us who have a music education degree were taught to do is probably a lot of call and response kind of things where uh, where I'll do a pattern orally for students, I'll, I'll perform orally O, uh, and students will respond with whatever approach we're using, right? So if we're using um, a Kodai approach, I might go, uh, I'll choose intentionally not to use Kodai syllables, right? I might go, boom, 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 and they go, ta, ti, ti, ta, ta that kind of back and forth. And, you know, these, all of these approaches enable doing that sort of real-time oral dictation. Uh, I think one of the things I found teaching oral skills at the college level is, it, you know, maybe we, some of us tend to go too soon to let's write down what we're hearing. Uh, that maybe we skip sometimes that first step of, do we actually have, have these rhythmic patterns in us for each beat? before we're trying to write down an eight bar rhythm. Mm -hmm. And on the complete other end of that with um, the youngest learners, that often looks like um, picture notation or, you know, just for example, um, where your students are maybe not even dictation. Um, maybe this is even more composition, but like, you know, your students are composing rhythms using pictures like of strawberries and blueberries and, uh, squeaky shoes because I'm drawing from a Pete the Cat lesson that I used to teach and and they're writing these wonderfully complex rhythm patterns without without any notes not even stick notation so again maybe this is maybe we consider this a proto notation but Absolutely. we've got patterns of of strawberries and blueberries and they they can look at it and they can chant it and so now they have a means for dictation as well. Uh, Leah, I think, you know, when you said the, this, the importance of combining two different approaches, um, it, it, can we circle back to that? Can we talk a little bit about why that's so important? Like, in other words, what are, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of, say, analytical subdivisional approaches versus mnemonic pattern approaches? And why might we need to combine both things? Right. So like I was just saying, this, you know, youngest students before they're even maybe even reading words can be dictating rhythm and composing and using symbolic notation. Uh, if you're using a, a word-based approach or even a pattern-based approach, but then if you continue to just to only do that, then when they're in an ensemble or they start taking piano lessons or whatever it is that they're doing, they're, they're looking at this notation going, um, I don't know this, but then they hear it and they know it. So helping them make that connection is going to allow them to be independent musicians much sooner than just down the line suddenly, okay, now we're going to count this instead. And they're not realizing that it's, it's something that they already know. They think they're learning something new versus if we had introduced it much earlier than, then they've already got the skills. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, so if we're, if we're talking about mnemonic or pattern based approaches, one of the things that I found uh, working with students who've learned primarily or exclusively using this system is sometimes those students really think at the beat level. And for instance, an example of a poor performance might be cherry pie, watermelon, apple, right? Where 
it's like you can hear the the thought of the time in between that it takes them to to get to what each mnemonic is and of course right that's that's something that we work to smooth out and you might get that as well in an analytical subdivisional system um but in the mnemonic approach there's nothing there's nothing that specifically says here is the underlying metronomic subdivisional flow to it and so usually when we're working in these mnemonic systems or pattern-based approaches we're doing something else to encourage that and so that's uh, it might be something kinesthetic with students patting the beat or swaying the beat or conducting to help uh, build in that flow and that understanding of it. Um, certainly another thing about these pattern-based approaches is, and, and, and Leah, you, 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 this goes to exactly what you were saying of, so I, I know these patterns, I know these patterns orally, I have this proto-notation, whether it's drawing ice cream cones or whether it's, you know, um, and, but then the options are endless. <laughs> the options are absolutely endless. I, I've I've done so many little compositional activities with you know ice cream, ice yeah, and yes, absolutely right. And ice cream cones are very easy to draw quickly, which is helpful for little kids. Um, but yeah, as connecting that to the analytical side of things, so that students can eventually oh, oh wait a second, I, I don't know this pattern. What is this? This isn't. This is a less common rhythmic pattern that maybe I don't have a word for. And, and how do I count that? Yeah. Um, I find the mnemonic approach is, is, uh, leads itself to a lot of creative kind of work, those compositional activities you were talking about. Um, but, but it may not engage, uh, it, it makes it a little harder sometimes to engage with an analysis of the music. Um, right. If students know that, that this is a this is a macro beat and this is a micro beat and they have a way to um, apply that to writing then or reading then they know that they can figure out how how rhythm's going to go. This is do do day do do or this is ta ti ti ta ta. Mm-hmm. But they probably aren't going to look at notation and go, oh yeah, that's a that's a watermelon and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Unless that's how they've been taught consistently. I, again, I'm not, nothing is off the table. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm down in Colorado right now, um, covering a maternity leave for uh, a Dalcro's friend of mine, uh, in, in, who runs this wonderful community music program for kids ages four through high school. And they have, you know, five, five levels of, um, of Dalcro's classes that they go through and they learn all of their rhythmic patterns, like just about everyone you could think of on uh, color names. And it is the most complete mnemonic pattern based approach I have ever seen. And to the point that, you know, I will, I'll put a rhythm on the board and I'll say, what's this? And they will say, that's a neon lemon, uh, neon lemon yellow, right? <laughs> they just, they, that is how they hear those. Um, and so I'll make my point again mm-hmm. that it really depends on the teacher and the sequence and what the learning objectives are. Totally. Totally. Yeah. You know, but I am finding I'm like, oh, I wish, you know, I, I especially with the upper levels of those classes, I'm like, oh, yeah, we need to we need to also start layering onto this a rhythmic analytical system because it's. It's not enough to see them in little in little blocks of patterns. So, 
Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about so much is some of these approaches lend themselves to helping us know where we are in a measure better than others do, right? Mm -hmm. Like traditional, the traditional American counting system, one and two and the Eastman system, where they name the beats. We help, we can, you can hear right away. Oh yeah. Okay. That's, that's where I am in the measure. And that's, and that's important, right? The, the, the relative stress shape of the measure tells us a lot about how to perform music. So if we're not working with you know, the Eastman or traditional American system, how can we get students to feel that, to, to internalize and, and know the, how to translate measure shape into performance? Conducting. Even at the middle school, uh, elementary school level? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if your students are in an ensemble. Um, I started out teaching them conducting because otherwise they don't know what I'm doing in front of them. Awesome. They have no idea. They need to know that like if they're if they're not sure, for example, where we are in the music, how do they find the downbeat again? They, they need to know that, that what a downbeat looks like in conducting because if somebody doesn't teach them that, they probably don't know. Right. And if you... If you're not counting using numbers, yeah. then if they're just thinking in their head in in another system that is not giving them numbers, they're just thinking do do do, and everything's quarter notes. Then they're going to be so lost. We do um, we do also at at the college level teach uh, just have them conduct mm -hmm. with it, um, and we definitely did that when we were doing Takadimi so that we knew where we were in the measure, just required conducting. Um, but I have also taken my students and had them dance to something, and step, clap, step, clap, mm -hmm. and just show that, that there is a meter that is so common, we call it common time, and that they already know how to conduct it with their feet and their hands. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. My other answer was going to be Dow Crows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and for, for listeners who don't know, I, I come from a, a real Dow Crows background and I do a lot of teaching uh, using uh, approaches from the Dow Crows method. And I also teach teachers to teach the Dow Crows method. Um, and, you know, David, when you, when you ask the, like, you know, even at, even at the middle school elementary level, I think about, I'm about to teach a class of four-year-olds in a couple of hours and on mm -hmm. our lesson plan for today is we're going to be doing a, a game where we're in 2-4 and we're patting, touching our head back and forth. And then we're in 3-4 mm -hmm. and we're patting, clapping and touching our, excuse me, no, we're patting, we're uh, in a circle and then we um, clap our neighbor's hands to our side and then we touch our head. One, two, three, and then we're in 4-4, four, four, we go pat, clap, touch our neighbor's head. So it's pat, clap, neighbor's head, right? So it's, I mean, it is, and that is... Of course, right, like that, so that it's the traditional conducting gestures. Gotcha. And, you know, and then, you know, as the students, when I'm working with slightly older students, right, like, uh, say I'm working with seven-year-olds, where they now have the dexterity to be able to bounce and catch a ball, you can translate into, yeah, you, you just build all those, all those things in through various conducting-like motions and sequences. Um, that's brilliant. I love it. That's great fun. You know, having students, you give students, um, let's say we're in 4-4, four, four, right? And so we might be doing bounce, catch, toss, catch. 
and walking around the room, or we might be in place. A great a classic Dalcro's game is I play a rhythm, a measure later you translate that rhythm into movement in your feet across the floor, right? So they're moving with their ball, doing their bounce, catch, toss, catch the hair, dee, da, da, dee, da, da. And they're still bouncing and catching, but now they're also walking it across the floor doing, doing that. And maybe we've assigned specific, specific things. So quarter notes are steps and eighth notes are step touches, or, you know, you can do, you make them up and change them. So yeah, yeah, movement. It's great if you have the space to, to move across the floor, but yeah, certainly, certainly we can all think of any, you know, patterns, movement patterns to get a sense of, of where we are in the beat. Um, the classic one, of course, if you have instruments in your hand, I, it, it seems really basic, but tapping the foot, right? It's just, it doesn't help us know where we are in the meter, but it certainly does help us know where we are in, in the beat. Um, yeah. And then eventually teaching students to just squeeze their toe and then just feel it and, and <laughs> I was just gonna say or just tapping toes because telling smaller children to tap their foot becomes a whole stomping fiasco <laughs> <laughs> yes it does but it can be it can be really helpful actually to see i certainly you know in piano lessons have mm-hmm. had students just you know tap in a way that i can see it so that i can mm-hmm. identify are they are they aware of where the note falls in relation to the beat and I suppose with all of these, then we have to make sure that we leave them room to unlearn that behavior when they're performing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this, you know, if we go back to episode one on solfege systems, right? This idea that we want to learn a solfege system so well that at the end of the process, we don't actually have to think about it. I think applies here for these rhythmic approaches also. We want to learn them so well so that at the end, I don't have to be thinking my dudadatas or my oneandas or my watermelons. I, I know so deeply how, how these rhythms feel, how meter shape feels, that, that I can just perform it, hear it. Uh, and if I need to, I can go back to analyze it or figure out what the patterns are. Um, yeah. But that's that that last stage fluency, right? Certainly fluency is the goal. Speaking music as a language, hearing music as a language, reading music as a language uh, are the shared goals of solfege and, and rhythmic counting systems. I love hearing from both of you that a, a combination uh, of techniques is helpful because I think I've thought that too, mm-hmm. but I feel obligated to commit to a system um, and I think maybe for an analytical system, it's useful to commit to one system so that students aren't trying to embrace multiple analytical systems. But having multiple approaches sure gives students uh, a lot of avenues into understanding. Yeah. And I've certainly found so, for some students, an analytical system is like, oh, yeah, this is me. I, I want this. I love this. And for other students, a, a mnemonic pattern-based approach is what really speaks to them. And so it can be, I mean, Leah, you mentioned that as well, uh, speaking to the different different uh, ways that students in your classes learn, really. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, there are problems with analytical systems that you might want another method to supplement. Um, and we should talk about what some of those drawbacks are. I think we've touched on some already, but um, 
you know, they can be very mathematical and maybe this plays into knowing where you are in the measure. Um, but it lends itself to being unmusical, um, since the students are literally looking at it, you know, maybe even like a math problem, you know, they're going through and they're counting and writing in subdivisions. And now, now it's become this complex thing on paper that is not music they're performing, but is this problem to be solved. Totally. I, I think also with, with these analytical subdivisional systems, um, the, the, if you start thinking about patterns, they sound really similar, right? Like do data versus do today. The, the, the actual sounds do today versus do data, right? Like it, there it's, there's nothing there that makes the whole thing different from the other whole thing. Whereas if you're working with mnemonic things like cherry pie or pineapple, they have a very different sound from the first moment in a way that that these, you know, that the takadimi, dudadeda, wanianda don't have a different sound from that first syllable mm. for each pattern. Although <clears throat> I noticed that within the analytical systems, there's also uh, some that are stronger in that department and some that are weaker. It's it's always bothered me that that's one of the weaknesses of of Gordon is that all of the syllables sound so similar. But it was only recently that I had read, and I don't know if this is true or not, that it was actually designed to help young students um, articulate well. <laughs> and that that's why they all have that same uh, sharp consonant at the beginning. So it's a flaw, uh, but it's also an advantage. So it just depends on what you feel is important to reinforce. Great. Well, I think this has been a great discussion and have we would you agree we've covered everything we wanted to cover have we missed anything i think we got to a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> yeah great so lots of resources to be found in the show notes also uh our sheets on rhythmic uh, counting systems at utheory.com slash teach slash resources Great. Well, David, Leah, thanks. And for all our listeners, uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, if you want to hear more things like this, let us know what you'd like to hear. Write us at notes at utheory.com. Subscribe to Notes from the Staff on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And check us out at utheory.com slash notes. Notes from the Staff is produced by utheory.com. Utheory is the most advanced online learning platform for music theory. With video lessons, individualized practice, and proficiency testing, U-Theory has helped more than 100,000 students around the world master the fundamentals of music theory, rhythm, and ear training. Create your own free teacher account at utheory.com slash teach.